Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels and today I'm joined by Ray Sherry, a triathlete and recent liver transplant recipient. Ray chats to me about his experience with primary sclerosis and cholangitis and how he used diet and exercise to manage the condition, showing his positive outlook on life throughout. Ray's positive attitude has continued until this day, helping him deal with having a transplant during a global pandemic and taking a keen interest in his recovery to help him reach his sporting goals for the future. So make sure you stick around to hear more from another inspirational guest. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you press subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, all the links will be in the show notes. Ray Sherry, welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. Yeah, thanks, Lewis. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on. I think it's going to be a unique and slightly different take to what we've had on the podcast before today. You are a very recent liver transplant recipient and actually had your transplant during the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about later on in the podcast. But to start with, we're actually going to go right back to the start. And when you first found out that you or your liver wasn't quite right. So you sent me some information this week. And so I've, I've read a bit when, when, when you were diagnosed. When did you first find out that there was something wrong with your liver? Well, I think it, it goes back quite a long time, actually. Um, in 2005, I was on a trip to South Africa with some friends to follow England, to follow the Barmy Army in Cape Town. And it was the first time England had played um, South Africa since apartheid. In fact, I'd seen the, the previous um, match in, in London, and this was the return game. So we, we all flew down to Cape Town, and uh, we, had, we had a great time, as you can imagine, with the Barmy Army. And, characters. Uh, and I had, a, I had a sort of a separate flight back um, to, to London, and jump on that flight, was feeling absolutely fine, um, had, a, had a stopover in Abu Dhabi, um, decided to go for a massage. And strange thing was, when the massage started, I began to feel a little bit nauseous and um, felt really uncomfortable. And then it was a case of getting on the flight. 
got on the flight and things just went downhill to the point where I really wanted just to get off the flight. Of course, you can't do that when you're, when you're in midair. And um, sort of I implored the, 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 the staff on the flight to sort of help me in some way, but they were just unable to do anything really. So I had to bear it until I got back to London. Uh, and then when I got back to London, I had to get back to Northampton where I was living at the time. And things were still deteriorating at that time. I was just feeling really, really ill. I had jaundiced um, in that in that 24 hour period. So it was very, very quick. I went to Northampton General Hospital that evening and um, they didn't really know what it was, to be honest with you, because, because I'd said I'd been in South Africa, they thought it was yellow fever or some other condition. And uh, they didn't know what to do or how to treat it. Um, they gave me they gave me some antibiotics and and put me through some tests, um, but concluded nothing. And it wasn't it wasn't until the the May of that of that year, so five months later, that one of the consultant doctors was able to put his finger on it, and he said immediately it was primary sclerosing cholangitis. It was PSC, and he immediately treated it with two sets of antibiotics, and. Um, shortly afterwards, within about two weeks, I was feeling much better and the jaundice had much improved as well. The bilirubin count, which most people will know about from a liver transplant perspective, will know that bilirubin is obviously um, the count that goes up as you become jaundiced and will go down as you become less jaundiced. So it took five months to diagnose. And um, in that time, I'd lost um, something like 16 kilos in weight. It's quite a lot. Didn't didn't hurt me to lose that to lose that weight. In fact, it was it was quite good. I, I mean, I had come down something like three short trouser sizes in that time, um, so that was good. I was living on uh, yogurt and cup of soups for for nearly four or five months, um, but it was the only thing I really I could I could keep down. Was that because of the condition? And for those who aren't aware, would you be able to describe a bit about the condition, which I'm not going to try and pronounce? I'll leave I'll leave that to the expert. Okay, yeah, primarily sclerosing cholangitis. Um, that it comes from, at least the science and um, the data suggests that it comes from ulcerative colitis. Um, I had ulcerative colitis when I was uh, age seventeen. I, I was I was attacked through salmonella food poisoning. It affected the colon. It causes an inflammation of the colon. I recovered from that after about six weeks, and then it was years later that I got. Um, salmonella food poisoning again unfortunately following a christmas dinner dinner at work and that hospitalized me um and things were really quite bad at the time so the the inflammation of the colon finds its way into the liver that's called it's called sclerosing uh into the liver and and effectively what it does is it it causes the liver to scar and narrows the biliary ducts within the liver itself um affecting the flow of the bile um, the bile through the liver, uh, and therefore, um, over time, it begins to sort of slow down. Um, occasionally, it would build up and infect, and then I would end up in hospital having sort of IV antibiotics for a period of time, and then be released after four or five days. All right, okay. And was only having cup of soup and yogurt because that was all you could keep down, or? Yeah, I mean, that's really, that's all I really felt like eating and drinking at that time. Um, so that during that five months period, that's, that's all my appetite was really up for. 
Um, but after I'd been treated with antibiotics, my appetite returned quite quickly. And, and, you know, pretty much every day since I've had a good appetite, I've been very fortunate to, to just be able to continue managing the condition for the last 16 years, basically, um, by um, just being sensible about sort of what I eat and what I drink um, and exercising, um, which was some of the best advice I was given very early on. In in terms of the first first time it was mentioned to me that I might need a liver transplant um, was when I had a, a distended gallbladder, effectively an inflammation of the gallbladder caused by gallstones, which also caused a certain amount of jaundice. And at that time, they were talking about um, whipping out that gallbladder, but also considering me for a transplant. And that that goes back as far as <clears throat> goes back as far as two thousand and nine. That was the first time that it was mentioned. Um, I was living in Pool, beautiful Pool at the time, and. I was referred up to King's College London um, under the specialist liver team there. And that's when I had the, the first conversation about a possible transplant. It was predicted at the time, and that's all the data that was available then, was somewhere between seven and 10 years um, from, from diagnosis. So I was already diagnosed four years earlier, and therefore it was somewhere between three and five years before I would need a liver transplant from that from that time compared to the other liver transplant recipient guests that i've had on the podcast so far you knew you'd lead a transplant a long time before they did they were in in the well less than two weeks one two days one 12 days how did you manage your condition for so long and did sport play a part in that like i know from the information you've sent me that you you're a talented athlete you represented wales under 20s in long jump and triple jump before you were diagnosed did that sporting, sporting talent and the love for sport continue throughout the time you were diagnosed and living with the condition? Yes, it did. In, in fact, the best advice I was given by, by Kings at the time was to stay fit and stay healthy. And I felt that since I wasn't a doctor, since I wasn't a consultant or a surgeon, the best thing that I could do really was to um, follow the path of fitness. Um, so I took up cycling in 2000 and I took it up in 2008 anyway, cause I thought being healthier, uh, whilst having a condition was, was probably a good thing to do, but it was reinforced by the consultant at King's, um, college hospital, um, in 2009. And I just continued to exercise ever since now the, the condition itself, and, and some people will already know this is that. You, you, you end up developing puritis, which is a, sort of a, an itching caused by the extra salts in your blood system. And that's for me, was probably the most difficult thing to manage over the last 16 years. Um, and what did I do? Well, keeping the skin cool, um, wearing clothes that weren't too tight, were fairly loose, um, allowed the, the air to circulate around the skin. Cycling was ideal for it because it got you out in the fresh air and it allowed the air to pass over the body. In fact, the cooler the day, the better, actually. Yeah. I also took up swimming. And um, again, that, that really helped. Um, and it kept, it, kept the, the skin cool. But it was also a question of um, not wearing too many clothes, um, uh, using moisturizer. Uh, I tried, I must have tried every moisturizer in the world um, in terms of trying to cool the skin down. But the one thing that really worked for me 
was the Brutes' own brand, um, Sultan, uh, with, with the aloe vera. And I just applied that to the skin, especially the areas where it's particularly warm and hot. And that sort of had a calming effect. Um, but all of this was was really decided by me. There was no there was no advice back in, in 2008, 2009 about how to manage the condition. Um, there certainly wasn't any dietary advice um, from from my recollection. And it was a question of sort of finding my own way. Um, and then once once I had found a way, it was a question of uh, living, living uh, according to that way and not forgetting that certain foods would trigger the uh, condition um, just being in hot environments which can trigger the condition um, not putting moisturizer on would trigger the condition um, or just sort of exacerbate the symptoms that that came about from from the PSC. sport did play a huge huge part in that because they had got me out stopped me thinking about you know my condition wasn't going to hold me back in terms of trying to live a fairly normal life um, so sports, um, the cycling especially, and then I moved into swimming and then running. Um, I didn't really get into the, the, the swimming and running, running seriously until th 2015. I was actually in the Maldives on holiday and there was a beautiful swimming pool in front of me. And I thought to myself, well, I'm enjoying my cycling, but it's only doing, it's only doing good to my lower body. It's only sort of strengthening the legs. It's not doing an awful lot for my upper body. And, and I really needed to have something that was much more rounded. So I decided at that time, um, to the to the to the humour of my friends, that um, that I would do triathlons and I would start slow and I would eventually move into doing some um, go tries, which are the early stage triathlons before moving into sprint triathlons. And and to this day, I still believe that um, being fit um, and healthy is is the is the best thing that you can do as an individual to ready yourself because you've got to put your hands into the into the hands of the the medical professionals and your gp etc um, but the best thing you can do is stay fit and healthy exercising so important as has been to me as well and i think what you've talked about there shows the determination that yourself and many other transplant patients or people with long-term conditions have to take control i've said this before on the podcast to control take control of their illness rather than the illness controlling you and just through this all the sports you've taken up there i didn't want to break your flow but a few things that i picked up on so doing triathlon and trying to keep yourself cool and certain foods triggering the condition so when you're there's going to be a few things here when you're cycling trying to keep your body cool and wearing the right clothing does that mean that you wore something different to the lycra that you might see a lot of cyclists wear nowadays? I'm not a cyclist, so I don't know if that is cooling or not. I know you can get keep cool base layers, that sort of thing. And on the dietary side, with certain foods that cause flare-up, did that affect how you prepared for sport in a sense of eating the right things to give you energy for the, for the day in the full race? Well, in, in terms of the clothing, not I didn't really wear anything different. I think um, where some people might have chosen to put on two layers because of the temperature, um, I would just put one on. And so because putting on layers traps the air, as, as most people know, that you get, a, you get that heat, a little sort of um, layer of air, which warms up and keeps you, keeps you warm. Um, I, I didn't particularly like that, and it just made me warmer than I needed to be. But I just wore one layer in most cases. Well, 
whilst other people when it was 10, 10, 12 degrees were probably wearing two or three layers. I was just wearing one layer. Um, in, in terms of food, um, I think that the, the biggest challenge was, was um, volume. I mean, I've, I've always had a great appetite and even up until my transplant, my appetite was pretty good. Um, but it was a question of volume um, and, and trying to sort of keep, keep down on things like the saturated fats and anything that was really sugar-based. Um, so I went from eating a fairly healthy volume of food to about half that before I went in for my transplant, mainly because the liver just wasn't functioning very well at all. And its ability to, to handle sort of at the higher volume, um, it was struggling basically. And it was just causing more and more symptoms, um, highlighting those symptoms even more um, compared with a lower volume of food that um, that sort of just allowed me to manage that that sort of impact. I noticed this when my kidneys were deteriorating, and I wonder if you did with your liver. But as you got closer to your transplant and your liver function reduced, did you find it more difficult to keep going with sport and keep your energy to the level it needed to be, and fitness level to the level it needed to be to, in your case, compete in triathlons? Well, um, my first triathlon was in two thousand and five. I did the Cardiff Triathlon. A sprint triathlon um the the swim went really well because it was in cardiff bay it was nice and cool and the cycle went really well and the run went really well the thing that didn't go really well is it took me almost two hours to get around um so that was that in itself was an experience but it wasn't about going fast it was just about getting around um but then i progressed steadily from um sprint distance up to standard olympic distance and i did that in I think it was 2019, October 2019, incidentally, on the hottest day of the year um, down at Eton Dorney, just outside London. And the thing I found about that was that um, the, the heat became a bit of a problem for me because of the, the symptoms of, of, of PSC. Uh, and I struggled when I got onto the run. Uh, I mean, a lot of people struggled anyway because it was a hot day, but I, I seemed to struggle more. Um, but last year, um, I was still pushing, pushing myself. I'd already done three half marathons at the start of the year. I was lining myself up to do Ironman Wales in September and had, had effectively planned out my whole year. So I never, I never for a moment thought that I should let the, the condition um, take over the, my life, basically. It was more a case of me pushing myself and taking that control and staying with it as, as, long, as, as long as my body was able to do it. I did it. Um, where things changed um, was in November of last year, where I, I certainly felt physically different and I looked different because I began to jaundice. Um, the liver function had begun to deteriorate. And it was only then, after doing a 125-mile uh, bike ride uh, in September, did I actually begin to feel that it was getting harder and harder and harder to the point where running running became more of a slog rather than an enjoyment, um, something that I enjoyed doing. And eventually the running I had to stop because it just became too difficult. But up until um, the weekend before the transplant, I was still cycling 30, 40 miles on a regular basis. Um, so I think, I think that sort of kept my mind off what would be um, quite a, a life-changing day 
when the transplant came and it just allowed me to continue to do my piece or my my part of getting ready for what would be a you know a big big day credit to you as well for doing that i know the similarities in what you're saying there uh between what you did and what i did just trying to keep it going as long as your body could do it i've said before on here that i was playing cricket up to quite close and running did become a slog running to chase the ball or going out for a run to try and keep fit was just getting harder and harder and you've done some, some in there some great achievements cycling 125 miles training for an iron man what would you say i mean this is going to be before your transplant um you've not had much chance to be fair to do much sport after your transplant what would you say has been your greatest sporting achievement or your sporting highlights over the years um well i've been very lucky because a lot of my early life i had some really really uh, enjoyable times with you know being cross country champion for the schools in cardiff uh, being Wales schools champion at long jump and triple jump so all of those were were fantastic days but you know wind the clock forward 30 40 years um back to 2010 where i had this great idea well i don't know it was a great idea but it turned out to be a great idea of getting a team of people together to cycle from Land's End to John O'Groats and raise money for Macmillan Cancer Support. Um, I was working with Barclays at the time and on, I think it was the day before Christmas Eve, before we broke up for the holiday period, I, I sent out a message to everybody in the, in the corporate organization asking for interested parties. And I got 39 people came back almost within 20 minutes um, saying, yeah, I'd be interested. That eventually got whittled down to 12 when the reality dawned about the amount of training that would be required uh, by everyone to just to get to a level where you could even start, never mind finish. Um, but in August 2010, we assembled a team of 12 people um, in, in Land's End. And with, with support, we started to cycle. And we cycled for 10 days, 100 miles a day. And we got to um, John O'Groats um, 10 days later. And on the final day, we got a gale. We got a gale on the north coast of Scotland, whereas the previous nine days we had enjoyed pretty nice weather. In fact, we had wind from um, from the east rather than from the southwest, hence hence um, uh, why we norm people would normally start in the southwest because they'd be getting sort of prevailing southerly winds to help them go north. But on that particular period, we had winds from the east, which weren't weren't too bad. But it was only on the last day that we had a, a John Amos storm and there was gales blowing right into our head and our faces. And at one stage we were doing we were doing updates on Twitter and we had to call out a crash. There was a big crash um, on that last day. And five of the guys ended up in a ditch. They were blown sideways into a ditch and got themselves out. Thankfully, they weren't going that quick because the wind was so strong. Um, but they got out of the ditch and, and they finished finished the event. And uh, 12 of us started and 12 of us finished. Um, we drove back down to Aberdeen that evening and we had a we had a big party, stayed overnight and uh, went went back to um, went back to our respective homes. So for me, that was my personal greatest achievement. Um, but I also take some um, additional pride in the fact that we got everyone around um, voluntarily. There was there was nothing there was nothing compulsory about this it was all voluntary and there's something you find out about yourself when you when you do things voluntarily and you push yourself to the extreme level you find out things about yourself is you you need to let people get through that sort of mental um challenge that you get when you're pushing yourself to the extreme level um yeah for me that was probably it um 
and anybody that knows cycling knows that you know to get up to 100 miles as well is like a major achievement get over 100 miles is you know even better so i've done that probably a dozen times now um besides the lanzan jono groats um and that that's that's something i really enjoy that is a that is a challenge that really is it's a brilliant achievement and it make even more so with the effects of the condition that you've spoken about already and being able to lead the team up there, the mental strength it takes, I'm sure will have helped you in your journey through uh, through liver failure and the transplant, which we'll come on to now. Do you think it helped that you had a long time to prepare for a transplant? I think it did in the sense that I I knew it was going to happen one day. Okay, there was, there was really no doubt about that. I didn't know when it was going to happen. And I certainly wouldn't have chosen to do it in the middle of a pandemic um, if anyone had asked me. Um, but it allowed me to do lots of my own research and, and learn about um, transplants, learn about before, during and after, uh, as well as the brilliant education packs that I got from the Royal Free in, in the lead up to the transplant. Um, it, it allowed me just to sort of effectively coast through life um, as best I could. and. I think it did. It did give me like an edge. It gave me time to prepare. Um, you know, take ten years to get to get a level of fitness that most people at my age would be really envious about. I think that was the thing that that um, I think gave me a lot of confidence going into the transplant. The fact that I had I had prepared myself in a very in a very very good way, and I couldn't do any. I don't think I could have done any more, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, I think those things are the sort of things that sort of kept me focused. How long were you actually on the waiting list for for a liver? Well, that that in itself is uh, it was an incredible thing, really, because um, there were very strong signs of deterioration in October and then November. I went to I went to the Royal Free for an assessment. Uh, I think it was the fourteenth and fifteenth of December last year, and I was put on the transplant list uh, a week later. So very similar to, to, to others that, that have been on a podcast before, that things happened very quickly um, once, once the liver got to a certain stage. Um, but I had, you know, I'd had 14, 15 years prep prior to that just to get myself fit, really. And I think a lot of people perhaps didn't get that or haven't got that. And I was very lucky in that, in that respect. Was a live donor ever discussed? Because I know livers can, be, can come from living people. Was that ever a, an option for you? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question because um, I have quite an extensive family, so there was always potential to go for a live donor. Um, the question was really about whether it was the right thing to do during a pandemic, and the advice that I was given at the time was that it probably wouldn't be a good idea um, during a pandemic to to take you know part of the liver from you know a living donor yeah. because because they would have to be hospitalised as well. For a period of time, and um, that probably wasn't the right thing to do. I did have a a moral dilemma myself about whether I would I could take putting a member of my family through that type of trauma. Um, and I, I, you know, happily in the end, I didn't really need to do that. Um, you know, for want of a better way of putting it, but it, it was put on the table. It was briefly discussed, but I took it off the table fairly quickly. I think that's understandable as well. A lot of people 
don't want to put somebody else through that experience. I mean, with the COVID situation as well, meaning an extra person in hospital, possibly more risk there. How did you cope with the delays due to COVID? Um, well, again, I think I was really quite lucky. Um, <laughs> when I was put on the transplant list, um, I knew that I was well prepared in the sense that I was informed by the transplant coordinators that there would be a number of potential false alarms. I would get called and for whatever reason, things wouldn't go ahead. That did happen to me once. I was called up to London, hung around for 12 hours, and then the, the transplant was called off um, for, for, for several reasons. Uh, at one stage, Royal Free actually shut down its transplant unit for, I think it was for a couple of weeks because of the pandemic. And at that time, the only the only transplant unit that was open in the UK, I think, was Newcastle. So my uh, I was transferred to the Newcastle list and had to go and, you know, be assessed by those guys. And I, I traveled up on a, on a Wednesday, stayed overnight. And then in the snow crossing um, the peaks, I went across to Newcastle and uh, went in, had a great assessment and a great day at Newcastle. They were they were amazing. Um and then three or four days later, I was put back on the Royal Free list. So it, it was almost like um, I was sort of enjoying the um, the trips to, the London, to, the London, to London and up to Newcastle, meeting people, discussing the condition. And because I was more focused about more focused on the the upside of a transplant rather than sort of the, the worry side of it which is, you know, how am I going to recover? Am I going to get through this? Whatever. And I, I never for a moment thought that I wouldn't get through it. Never. I think that's a good way to look at it as well, thinking of all the positives that you can take from it. And the question that we've managed to get half an hour, nearly half an hour in, and I haven't asked yet, when it did go ahead in March, did it all go smoothly? Very much so. Yes, good very much so. Um, yeah, I still hung around for 12 hours, but there is, as most people will know, there's a lot of prep involved. And of course, you, you, you have to think about the, the donor and the donor's family and what they're going through at that time. Um, and the fact that the, the, the donor needs to be prepared. And uh, at the time, uh, the liver, I believe, was coming from the north of England and it had to be prepared and it had to be transported down to, to London. And at any time, something could have gone wrong, um, but thankfully it didn't. And it went ahead very smoothly. And I remember being updated by the liver transplant coordinators um, almost every two hours they were, they were coming around and speaking to me. I was the only one in the, in the actual ward unit. There were six beds, but I was the only one in there. I'm not sure if that was COVID or just because they didn't like me or whatever, but um, <laughs> I'm sure it was because of COVID that the amount of isolation and treatment and care that was taken was, was incredible. Um, but yeah, they would come around every two hours, update me. And it was on the 12th hour that they came and said, we've got the green light. Let's, let's, let's go. And I remember walking down with, um, with uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the coordinator, uh, Kate, um, walking down to the operating theater like it was like we were just going out for a, like a, to the shop or something like that and got down into level three, I think it was, in the Royal Free and sat there just having a chat with an anesthetist. Up until that time, I hadn't given a single thought really to the transplant and the operation. I deliberately steered my mind completely away for it from it because i think if i'd started to think about it then i would have started to like worry about it and that would have pushed my blood pressure up my pulse up and would have got me in a sort of a worse state and i used i guess i used my power of mental focus just to just to steer away from thinking about it and really the only time i thought about it was talking to the anesthetist because i could see into the operating theater i could see the the table 
And after 10 minutes chatting outside, uh, checking all the, all the labels and so forth, we went in and I laid on the table and looked around and asked questions about the technology and how things are going. Because I have a technology background. I'm curious about technology, especially in medicine. And um, we're having a good chat. And he said, well, we're just going to prep you and send you off to sleep. And within about five minutes, I was asleep. And I came around and don't remember a damn thing. Not a thing. It's a strange experience going into the operating theatre and going under. And again, the mental strength you've shown to to not think about the actual operation is really admirable. I was thinking about it a long time up until that. As soon as it found out it was happening, it was right okay, this could happen, this could happen. Not the right way to be, but I suppose you deal with it in your own way. Once you'd had the transplant, how did it affect your fitness? Well, with a 22-inch scar <laughs> or wound across my uh, my abdomen, I think the first thing that I, I found very difficult, as again, most people would find, is just the ability to move. Not even, not even step forward, but just to move uh, around in bed yeah, and then sort of take that first step, which is to ease yourself onto the side of the bed, and then eventually ease yourself onto the floor and start walking. So I think once I'd once I'd managed to do that without any real assistance, it was a question of just sort of gradually walking that little bit more. So and and being careful about um, walking into things, um, being careful about walking too close to people because they might walk into you. Um, so very, very conscious of things like that and just taking my time to do everything. Really almost robotic, to be honest with you, in those, in those early few hours after the, after the operation. Just being very careful and doing things very, very slowly. Um, but once I was out of bed, it was a question of how many laps can I do of the ward? How many, lap, how many Ks can I get in that day? And gradually went from um, walking around once to twice to five to 10 to 15 to 20 and I think in one day, um, about a week later, I had got up to 5K just walking around the ward. Um, so it was just a question for me of bearing in mind that I had just had a huge life-changing operation, just taking my time and building back fitness slowly that I was advised to do and not trying to do anything um, that might stretch me at that stage and i thought walking is a very natural thing to do and therefore if i can do it i should do it eventually i progressed onto the steps that that are also in the ward and started doing those several times a day as well um and um that just built confidence and just got me just got me moving again and once you got out of the hospital how did you take your recovery to the next level and step it up a bit from there i mean doing 5k in the wards is is great it's something that i never even thought to do and probably didn't have the confidence to do it at that point. But how did you, you take the next step once you got home again? Um, well, to be honest with you, I've never really liked walking. Um, I've always preferred running, cycling, or swimming. So walking, because it's, uh, it's something you do sort of naturally, I, I never really took to it as a, like an activity, um, more a thing that you do just to get to the car or think the thing that you do to get onto the bicycle. But I started to walk more. I got outside uh, in the fresh air and um, just started to walk on, on a daily basis. Um, and I didn't really set myself any specific target about how far I should walk, but I just started walking around the block of, of um, you know, where I live and then going to one of the local beauty spots, um, walking, walking down to that and walking around the lake, a place called Roth Park, 
where there was a you know a stimulus where the, where the you know birds hang out in terms of the swans and the geese and the ducks and all sort of it's a beautiful beautiful area and using sort of a bit of nature to sort of sort of settle my mind and and you know make it interesting in terms of um a walk and i think that was really really beneficial um and then when i could drive again i was able to go down more frequently and 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 maybe do a couple of laps of that lake so it was a question of just gradually building um and not trying to extend myself too much not doing any hills for you know at least a couple of weeks until I after I got home, and then gradually building hills in. Um, because hills I thought were quite taxing early on, um, not least because they were just putting me out of breath, but also they were sort of stretching my abdomen in a way that I wasn't feeling comfortable about really. So yeah, I just continued on walking um, uh, to the point where I could get in the car and then get on the bike again. I think a lot of people in our position transplant recipients, immunodepressed, have all taken up walking in the last 15 months, especially you you more recently since your transplant. What's your fitness like now, now that you're about, about 12 weeks on? Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're just into the 14th week now. And, um, I think my fitness has, has improved. There's no doubt in, in terms of, um, where it where where it is where it was obviously those few, those first few days after the operation, um, but it is it is beginning to highlight some things that I wasn't expecting. Um, so at the weekend I I cycled uh, nearly eighty kilometers across two two different days, um, but that's had a big impact. So yesterday I had, I had I didn't do anything basically I just lounged around and took it easy because the muscles were really quite sore, um, and it was very akin to cycling a hundred miles. That's what it felt like. Um, in terms of the impact that that had. So I'm thinking that there might have been some muscle damage before the operation when in that four-month period prior to the operation um, that I wasn't really cognizant of. Um, But when I started to exercise again and push myself again, that's become um, more more sort of transparent and more visible to me. Um, And that's something I'm going to discuss with the doctors today in my my regular checkup. so I've had to stop running for the time being because I think that's just one sport too many at the moment. Um, but I'm going to focus on the the cycling and keep that going and um, be a little bit be a little bit more sensible for a few <laughs> more weeks longer. Really, we had a chat before recording, messages back and forwards to try and you know, work out when we we're going to do this and give, get us a bit of clear information on what we're going to talk about. And you mentioned as a triathlete a little bit of a the goals you've got short term the challenges you're doing at the moment on the bike and a running one do you want to tell the listeners a bit about that yeah so for the bike um my hope is to get up to 50 kilometers in one single ride by the end of this month um i've also got um we every year there's a there's a there's a ride from cardiff to west wales uh, what we call the car 10 it's 108 miles i did it in 2019 um what we're going to do is I'm going to get together with some friends. We're going to try and cycle part of that route halfway and then come back. Um, that's 108 miles. I'm going to try and go as far as I can, bearing in mind that I also need to be able to come back as well. So I might do 30 miles out and 30 miles back. Um, there's a dragon ride um, in a place called um, Pembury Park uh, in September. That's 100 miles, and it involves going up quite a few hills in the Brecon Beacons. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to go to it, and I'm going to have a go at uh, I've seen as far as I can I can get. Um, in terms of running, my intention is to try and get the 5K this year. 
Um, and I do have a marathon booked, uh, the Newport Marathon entry booked, the carryover from last year. I have that booked. Um, I think it's October the 28th. Um, I'm not expecting to run a marathon this year. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll go and I'll enjoy the atmosphere and the encouragement from the people that will line the streets. And I'll just go as far as I can, really, whether it's 10K or 15K or whatever, and, and just enjoy it, really enjoy it. And um, I would like to get prepared for Leeds next year, the the, the Transplant Games next year. Um, and I'm thinking of entering cycling and possibly some track and field as well. Um, I'm thinking of bringing back my triple jump technique from when I was under 20 and maybe giving that a go. My brother advised me to, to, to have a go at triple jump. He said, the reason, the reason why you'd be good at triple jump is because you have technique. Um, whereas somewhere like something like jump, long jump, for example, as long as you have sprint speed and you take off in the right place, you could get distance. Whereas triple jump, you've actually got more chance of success because there's three stages involved, three phases involved, which requires more technique. And I still have the technique from, from when I was in my, in my late teens. Um, and then hopefully next year, um, take part in Leeds 22 and ideally then qualify for the world championships. I think there's a chance. I think anyone that, um, enters, um, has a chance of qualifying for the world championships. And then I plan to, I plan and hope to go to Perth in, in 2023 in April, and then turn that into a bit of, um, bit of a tour around that part of the world. Um, head off to Bora Bora around to um, Haiti, Fiji, um, up to Hawaii, California, New York, and then back to London, and maybe take a couple of months off. I think the one thing that having the transplant has has um, reignited in me is is that life is short, and you know my passion for travel is is ever stronger, especially especially with the pandemic around. And I, I know that maybe the pandemic may not be cleared around some of the world um, in even in 2023 there still may be pockets of the pandemic in different countries that I might visit but I'm hoping not I'm hoping it's it's um, it's all gone and everyone in the world has been vaccinated but that's the, the the plans over the next 18 months two years you're clearly very ambitious and you've got a lot of plans there and I like the fact that you've taken the transplant in your stride you've got this gift now the gift of life again and you're going right I can do this I can do this I can do that and the fact you're planning ahead is really good and Leeds 2022, I think it was, it was either today or yesterday, we've now got confirmed, or I say confirmed, we've got dates that that's set to go ahead next year. I know it's been cancelled for the last yeah, two years, yeah. but that is set to go ahead at the end of July next year. So hopefully see you there for my first one as well. And Well, that would be great. I really hope so. And from what I've picked up from speaking to other people who've been to the Games, and like you said, there's a chance to qualify for the World Transplant Games the year after, is have a go. Pick a sport you think you might do well in. Pick some sports that you just want to have a go at. Do just enjoy it. Embrace it is what I've I've got a feeling of and been told by other people who've been. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're someone who's in your recovery stage at the moment, still recovering, still building your fitness back up, and you've done some great things with it. Have you got any tips for other people who are recovering from a transplant in regaining their fitness? I think um, I think this is a tip that I would pass on to anybody, even even if you haven't had a transplant, is that you should always listen to your body. Um, by listen to your body, I don't mean that your body's making noises, but your body will react in certain ways depending on how you treat it. So if you're going to run a marathon, you're probably going to have sore knee joints. If, um, if you're going to cycle 100 miles, you're probably going to have a bit of sunburn from being outdoors. Um, so listen to your body and, and adjust what you're doing based on sort of how you're feeling. I think for me, that's something I've, I've followed over the last 16 years since I was diagnosed. But I was even doing that well before. Um, your body will let you know if it's not up for what you intend to do. And therefore, you should take note. Um, I've known many runners over the years that think that they think that doing more running is the way of getting better. Actually, it's a balance between doing the right exercise, changing um, the nature of that exercise. So if you're always running, you're not always going to improve. Um, sometimes it's better to run over a different terrain, maybe up hills, maybe through a countryside lane or whatever. If you're always running on um, concrete or tarmac, it's not necessarily going to be something that you can improve upon. Um, but don't forget to give yourself rest and don't forget to eat and drink in the right way. I completely agree. Rest is so important and staying hydrated, especially I know from my point of view as a kidney transplant recipient, staying hydrated is so important. You've talked, we've talked about the, uh, your plans for the future, where you want to go, what you want to compete in. Would you consider doing the Ironman you were training for? That's a really good question. Um, and it's something I've, I've mulled over in my mind. Um, certainly not for the next two years because I'm, I'm in the wrong end of the age group. Um, I think I'll come back to it after 2023 um, and, and reconsider then. Because I think, I think there's enough to focus on over the next 18 months, two years without complicating things with an Ironman. It's a substantial amount of training as well that, that, um, that you need to put in. And I've, I've been working towards Ironman Wales for like four years. And last year I was really getting up to that level. 
So it's it's not something that I can take lightly as a as a decision because the amount of time you need to invest in training for it. But I think I'll put it off for a couple of years and I'll come back to it when I'm in my 60 to 69 age group and give myself more chance of doing better. I think that's sensible and also quite a clever choice to wait until you're in the next age category <laughs> Absolutely. at the bottom end. Ray, it's been so good to talk to you today and I think the... Uh, your mental strength and determination is really admirable. And I think people will take something from that final question before we go. And it's the one that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant to think is going to be especially poignant coming from somebody like you who has just had it done? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think there's probably two pieces of advice really. Don't worry about the transplant, you know, we have amazing professionals, medical professionals in this country. Um, they will do an amazing job. And, and there's very little you can do to influence um, the medical side of what they do. So focus on what you can do. And what I did was I focused on my fitness. And I was able to influence that in a very, very good way that put me, I think, in the best place possible to recover well and obviously increase my chances of a successful transplant. So don't worry about the transplant. Don't worry about what you're going to go through. Focus on you and focus on your fitness. Um, and, and eat reasonably healthily. I, I think um, anybody who's who's um, suffering from uh, a degraded liver function will know that there's certain foods that they they can't really eat. And and, and I would I would say stick stick to that and, and don't eat things that are going to make you feel unwell. But um, your fitness level will really, really help you get through. Um, and therefore, try to, try to do your part of the whole transplant process by staying as fit as you can. There we go. Thanks again to our guest today, Ray Sherry. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transplant's Take on Sport. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.